Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers who sit around, drink, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosts are David Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 92, interview with Bruce Rogers. Welcome, Bruce. Hi. Um, and uh, if I might add the middle name in there, Bruce Holland Rogers. Absolutely. We do not want to mistake you for the typesetting or IT security, Bruce Rogers. <laughs> Well, and actually, I know the uh, English is a foreign language, Bruce Rogers. We both have MFAs and both taught at the University of Colorado for a while and used to get each other's mail. And, and I'm devastated that I didn't get your class, but Dave took your class back at University of Colorado, correct? Yeah, I took uh, yeah, a couple. I, thought, uh, I think you took a couple right, I was going to say. Yep. You were a regular. And then Dave was also a, a participant in some uh, informal at-home workshops that I had. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, Dave... Dave has not yet posted any of his short fiction, but I remember reading his short fiction at the time and loving it. So clearly you were a better influence on him than I was during those years. I never take any credit for uh, how writers manage to, to find the best of themselves to bring out. Well, you, you could. I mean, you know, writers all have ambition. Are, <laughs> let, me, let me guess. It's because you don't want to take the blame either, right? <laughs> well, part of it might be not wanting to take both the credit and the blame. But mm -hmm. I actually think that um, even though I do think I, I am a good teacher and take pleasure in teaching, I really see the whole enterprise of uh, teaching writing to be part of a vast collaborative process. Uh, ideally, all of the arts are really a, a community where all the participants want the same thing, ultimately, which is good art. So uh, I tend to think of something like a writing class as a gathering of more senior and less senior writers, where maybe the more senior writers talk more because they know more, uh, but that changes and the baton passes. Are there advantages, do you see, to being an old writer? Or let's just say older, because I am, of course, still 35, the same as you guys. Uh, yes. Well, I won't claim it all to be uh, 35 anymore. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I've... Um, I had a few rough years there health-wise, and that, along with the, the process of getting older, uh, sort of took the edge off some things that were real drivers for me when I was younger. So I, I get, you know, I've, I've been doing this long enough that I, um, in a sense, I, I want to say I, I don't have anything left to prove, but that's not even quite the right way to formula, uh, formulate it. It's more a matter of I'm really comfortable with doing what I do, and I don't mind at all if others are doing something different. And I'm comfortable whether I write or whether I don't write. So that's for, for those. We talked right when this whole thing fell and COVID started. We were talking about writing during the time of cholera and that a lot of people have felt that creativity does not quite flow when you're sitting around being anxious about death and destruction, et cetera. So how do you feel about these fallow periods when the writer just isn't writing anything at all? I think sometimes they can be really productive and productive in the sense that if we are really busy with writing and we're going from one project to another, and I've always had the ability to generate lots of projects, most of which I will never get to in two lifetimes, uh, and a fallow period where one is either physically constrained from writing or has difficulty concentrating enough to write, 
can actually be an opportunity to take a break from that sort of motivational through line that may have been gathering for years and to try spending some time just being comfortable with being. Um, something that I see creating discomfort in a lot of younger writers is the desire to be recognized as a writer, to be taken seriously as a writer. And there's a kind of defensiveness that comes with that. And I think sometimes fallow periods can be an opportunity to discover that you're still you and you still have things to offer to the world when you're not writing. And maybe that helps you to return to your writing with a bit more calm and maybe a bit more authenticity. The reverse could happen too, though. I mean, you, especially if you're young, you could be like, oh, I'm blocked. Uh, <laughs> now, not only um, is my, you know, I, I not only am I not being taken seriously, I can't do anything to like regain my status. I, I mean, you kind of a panic sets in, I would think that. Well, I think sometimes the, the sensation of being blocked, I mean, one of the things that I, I said in my book about writing word work is that all myths are true and writer's block is a myth that is a true myth. It is true in two senses. Um, so there's, there's the story of the writer who um, is using being blocked as a way of inhabiting the writer's identity without having to do the hard work. So in this mode, maybe you dress all in black and you go to the coffee shop and you talk to other block writers about how block you are and the great work that you're going to produce once you get on block. And you get to get some of the social benefit of your writer identity without the psychological challenges of knowing whether what you did today stands up. Uh, is it good enough? Is it headed in the direction you want it to go? And for that kind of writer's block, it's true that what the writer just needs is a kick in the seat of the pants and some form of discipline that makes the writing actually happen every day. But there are other times when the writer's having difficulty writing, and it might just be because there's something uh, non-writing that they should be paying attention to in their lives. And the block is there to start trying to reinforce uh, this psychological impetus to pay attention to something else. There was a, a great quote, and I think it was by William Faulkner, who said, I write when I'm inspired, and I see to it that I'm inspired at nine o'clock every morning. Yeah. And I kind of liked that because we had a, a couple of professional novelists on board that said, was like, what inspires you? And one of them said, my mortgage. And the other one said, car payments. <laughs> and you know, yeah. these are, that kind of, to me, speaks of the discipline thing you were just saying, that the, the discipline yeah. of sitting down and writing something even if it's not the most creative, amazing thing in the world, is still a discipline of sitting down and doing something at a particular time and place. I can't remember what writer it was who spoke in terms of uh, showing up, up at the desk to meet the angel. And on many days, the angel isn't there. But <laughs> if the writer doesn't show up, uh, then what if the angel comes? It was an opportunity that the writer missed. Yeah. I also remember a quote um, I think it was a quote you brought up in one of the classes that I took from you. Um, somebody asked uh, a writer, um, if you have to actually write to, uh, to be a writer, and he said something to the effect of, uh, no, but it does help your credibility. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that quote or who might have said that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so you would, you would also put notes out there about on, on being a minor writer. 
when you say all writers are minor, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that from somebody's perspective, um, some writers are less interesting, less important than others because, say, they wrote in a period where none of the literature seems to that person very interesting, or they write in a language that is a, uh, it could just be a minority language, so not very, very many people will have an opportunity to ever encounter that work. Uh, but this also has to do with the prejudices of taste from uh, genre, and there I mean that both in terms of large-scale genre, like novel versus poem versus play, that some genres are considered to be major, some are considered to be minor, uh, and also then into market categories of genre, science fiction, romance. I just and, got into a fight on this online, and let, I, because I want to share it out here, what defines literature versus people are saying, well, is it literature or is it genre? And genre, you have to say with almost disgust dripping off your tongue. And we, I, yeah, I'm we, the opposite we, side that genre is just a category. It can all be literature. Well, Chaz um, went on about this last last time uh, at, at some length, so I'm interested to hear what you're saying. Yes, well... Totally ranted. Yeah. Well, can I, also, <laughs> I also think I've, I've mentioned... So my, my mother was a college professor, okay, and she, she specialized in Western American novels, okay, she, and I read science fiction, although she was the one who handed me The Hobbit one day and said, here, you like this sort of thing, tell me what you think, and um, David, or Brian Atterbury, who is, you know, Mr. Science Fiction and, and um, Ursula Le Guin's uh, research buddy or whatever, um, and, and did, um, was one of the first people who went to ICFA um, was actually in the same department as my mother. And so they co-taught a genre fiction class and she taught, um, she taught uh, mystery and he taught science fiction and she taught Westerns and she sat in on the science fiction one. And afterwards she, she looked, I visited at Christmas or something and she said, I now understand. I now understand science fiction. And essentially, essentially it's, it's not crap after all. <laughs> and so I think, I think that if you approach it in a certain way, if you've been taught or if you approach literature, or you've been, you know, and that's what you've been told is literature and you're not aware of the other, you know, the other aspects of writing, you're going you're going, everyone develops tastes, everyone develops, you know, this is what is right, this is what is good. And if you've been taught one way, and then, and then, and that this other way, you're not going to, you're, you're, you may not even be able to catch the nuances. It may just go right over your head, because you're not looking for them, or you're just not aware of them. So anyway, I'll go back to the quiet. I think that this, um, it, it relates to this question of literary and how it relates to science fiction. And um, Chaz probably read a lot of the science fiction that I read in the 70s, yeah. um, having a young person's memory of it and, uh, you know, sort of having, having carried it around um, as, as, a, as an experience that one has already had, uh, but not necessarily revisited. Um, and I'm saying all of that because uh, for one of the directed reading classes that I taught in the MFA, and, and the whole point of directed reading is that we're going to examine some literature as if it were a stolen purse. 
we're going to rifle through it. We're going to look for the good stuff that, that we can steal and use in our own work. Okay. So that can be structural <laughs> things, that can be uh, aspects of style. Anything that we notice another writer doing that we think is a learnable skill, we try yeah. to you know, write down what that skill is in a way so that we could find it and use it again. And one of the participants in that was, was interested in um, uh, reading some novels about sentient sons. So I had a really vague memory of having read Rogue Star by uh, Jack Williamson yep. and Fred Pohl. Yep. And so I assigned it to the class without rereading it. <laughs> and part of the legacy that we have to live with in, in science fiction is how bad <laughs> from a literary perspective, some of the product yep. was. Yep. And we still found ways to, to, to make use of, of that novel. Um, but a lot of it was actually noticing how bad fiction could be and still be published in the <laughs> 1970s, even from somebody who did really wonderful work yes. yeah. uh, at, at other times. And I think that is part of um, why it is an effort sometimes to get people to read science fiction who say that they read only literary fiction mm -hmm. because uh, maybe they tried, they it, tried it and, and found something that was atrocious like that or else just by reputation. Yeah, that's, uh, that's Sturgeon, isn't it? 90% um, of science fiction is crap, but 90% of everything is crap. Um, but I'm not sure that's actually true of literary fiction. I think it... it I have slogged through a lot. Jane Eyre is crap. Wait, wait, let him, let him finish. He might be about to say 99% of literary fiction is crap. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, and um, Jane, Eyre, Jane Eyre is not crap. Jane Eyre is not to my taste at all, but my father adored it. Um, Wuthering Heights? Likewise. Yeah, um, Victorian novels generally, not my thing at all. Dad adored them. Um, but the, the filtering process has been in place for literary fiction for a long time. Um, and it, there, there was not much filtering going on in science fiction, I think, in the early years. This whole question of what constitutes literary makes me think of all kinds of categories, um, it, under which the term might be used. So to just run through a few of them that I've thought of, uh, literary is a commercial label. It is, in a sense, a, a publishing uh, market category for how do you put the sa similar books on shelves in a particular part of the store so that readers who have liked some of the books there will find other books that are similar. Um, one of the challenges in publishing or movie making or maybe art of any kind is that audiences want more of the same but different. So that notion of a genre or a category makes for a degree of replicability for the, the audience's experience. But I, I'd say it's much broader than that too. It's also a class distinction. And for what I mean by that, I have to refer to my uh, English brother-in-law whose grandmother at one point worried uh, in my presence that James wasn't reading suitable books mm. and by suitable books she, she really meant um, she, she really was talking about a class distinction that he was not properly revealing his class or participating in his class by reading the kinds of books that he was reading. Yeah, yep. this um, might be what Chaz was getting at last time. It's, it's, that's probably an aspect of it. It's certainly, it's, it's a very familiar 
um, aspect to English social life um, that we are still class-ridden. And there are certain behaviours that attach to certain classes. Um, I mean, I, I, know, I know writers in the UK who grew up in a house that had no books because reading was not what they did. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of that in America. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, I walk down the street sometimes in the evening as, the, as people have not closed their curtains, which you can see in their house, and there's so many who have no bookcases. Mm. It's like they have these vast empty walls with no bookcases. <laughs> how, how can you have a wall and not put a bookcase against that? It's an offense against nature. Yeah, uh, you're a millennial, and it's all on Kindle, guys. I'm going to say that there's a whole different way to consume media, but... But, but, but that gets, I guess, is there a question then? Because now writers are writing, if I wrote this amazing, if I wrote the latest version of Dune, some sweeping, sociopolitical, glorious literary novel set in space, is there a disconnect between writing and a publishing company who's like, oh, yeah, sci-fi, slap a label on me and push me aside? What it is, really what is depends on, on what your history as a writer is. And, and that's one of the other aspects. This sort of gets to, to what Chaz was talking about with um, his sense that uh, the University of East Anglia seems to turn out similar product in terms of, of the writers who are graduates from its, its program. I did say that. Uh, uh, well, I thought you had said something along those lines, that there is, yeah. that there is a, a sort of in intellectual, um, oh, this isn't a nice word, but but it's the one that springs to mind, an intellectual incestuousness that can spring up from certain um, kinds of uh, academic or artistic communities. Yeah, so and, there's and a through line. Exactly, and that's, and that's addressing that, that literary is also a social network that may have some overlap with academic networks. So who you are, who you've been, who your friends are, can to some degree uh, influence how your writing Dune will be received in the publishing world now. Well, I, I, I would look at someone like Colson Whitehead, who is a novelist who from the very beginning of his career was clearly a literary writer, but he gave some hints that he might have some um, speculative leaning or speculative interests. His first novel, The Intuitionist, is about a black elevator inspector uh, who is, as the title suggests, an intuitionist. She inspects elevators and escalators by being able to ride them and have a intuitive sense of what might fail in them, uh, as opposed to the uh, opposing camp, the empiricists, who you know have to take the thing apart and look at all of the pieces and test them to know when an elevator might fail. Um, but he, in, in subsequent novels, he was more clearly, you know, in the literary camp, except he also wrote a zombie novel. Excellent. And I heard him interviewed recently, and he, he sort of noted, you know, well, I grew up with this sort of thing. This, this is part of my cultural milieu, and maybe as a literary writer, I shouldn't be writing a zombie novel, but I did. It was, <laughs> it was the next book I, book I did. It just happened that way. Um, if you look at the opposite end, somebody like Ted Chang, who is technically elegant, and that's one of the things that I would say is a characteristic that, that people look for in, in fiction they're going to call literary, is a degree of technical accomplishment. Um, and certainly Ted has that, 
but he started publishing work that was science fiction from the very beginning, even though I would say with his, his small body of work, it's all so excellent, it's all so exquisite, and it really could be appreciated by literary audiences. He just doesn't get exposed to them very much. Yeah, he, that's a very good example. That's a very good He just amazes me that he could um, write a science fiction, an actual real science fiction where I think the science was accurate about prehistoric men, you know, and, and, and things like that. And he just amazes me. But I, I, know, I know what you mean, kind of mentioning my mother again. She once um, took me to see some friends of hers, and we, we stayed the weekend. And I spent the night in the bed that the, the night before Lawrence Ferland Getty had been sleeping in. So, um, but that's the kind of people my mother would know. And I would never, you know, I would never happen upon Lawrence Ferland Getty just otherwise. However, I did run into um, Ted Chang, you know, here and there and everywhere in conventions and stuff. And um, I think I'm the better for it. It sort of goes, if you hang out with like, do you start becoming more like, is there an institutional homogeneity within groups of artists that sit around and drink wine in the bar, for instance. To some extent, well, sure. And, and I said a lot at of the it. beginning that, that I see teaching writing as this communal activity where on some level teacher and students are, or in my ideal, should be approaching the class as colleagues. Mm. Um, right. Now, you wrote, you wrote a book, Wordwork, Surviving and Thriving as a Writer, 20 yeah. years ago. Pitch a little bit about us and... In the last 20 years since you wrote it and you've been teaching more, has anything in your perspective changed? That book is about the practical, psychological, and if you will, spiritual challenges to being a committed artist. And it really says very little about the mechanics of making a living through writing. And I, I think that it's it's holding up over these 20 years very well, even though publishing as a technology, as a, a business enterprise is changing so much because artists still have those same struggles and still have those same psychological challenges over issues like, um, well, a, a big one actually touches on what we were talking about in literary versus genre. I had a chapter in Word Work that discusses writers at the barricades where um there are those writers who are extremely productive and are making a good living and can write uh, a novel a year, maybe even two novels a year. They need a pseudonym or more than one pseudonym because their productivity rate is so high. And they're on one side of a barricade versus other writers who are very slow and maybe only write two novels in their career. And one side is calling the others hacks, and the other is, is calling the opposite side dilettantes, amateurs. Um, and, and I think that those kinds of splits and divides, and also the opportunities they represent to maybe dissect some of these cultural tendencies and figure out what we have to learn from each other, all of that is still very present. I, I could see that. I mean... Right now, there's a lot of people that have to find some sort of job that pays their rent and bills, because as we all know, starting out as a writer, your first book out of the gate does not earn 50000 and then, you know, 100000 for life after that. So could people write more if different circumstances and 
that goes a little bit back into the classism. Was it easier to be a novelist in the 18th century if you came from money? Well, I think it's easiest oh. to do anything if you come from money. <laughs> it could be. Uh, he's arguing with you, even me. Yeah. Uh, Bruce, a couple you, of years before he died, Damon Knight said to me that he felt that he had possibly lived in this narrow slice of human history where it was possible to be a novelist uh, as, as a career. Um, he said, you know, it was, it was uh, something that the, the moneyed classes could do to entertain themselves and each other. And then for a while it was, was actually something that, that could be a career. And uh, he felt that he saw that it was going away. I think that something that James Michener said in the 1970s is more true than ever. Michener said, it's impossible to make a living as a writer in America, but you can make a killing. <laughs> and, 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 and he would know. Uh, but I think that the, the slice of those writers who are able to make a lot of money from writing novels, it's probably going to be around, but it's going to get smaller and smaller. Whereas I think more and more writers are going to be living in the long tail and self-publishing and perhaps working with Patreon and having a very devoted audience that is a perfect fit for their work, but that audience, in order to make that writer be able to, to sustain the writing, to be able to put in the hours to be productive, is going to have to be more than uh, an audience that just buys the occasional book. They're going to have to be something more like a classical patron of the arts. Yeah, sponsor. Yeah. Now, you were talking about how authors used a different name when they were writing a different sign. Chaz has a couple different nom de plumes. You use different pen names. What was your, what, what is the reason? Is it that productivity or does it go back to a different genre or how were those choices? I'm, I'm delighted that you would ask me if it was productivity because uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, except for in the, the short, short story where when I was running my subscriptions to short, short, short.com, uh, I had paying subscribers who received a short, short story from me about one every 10 days. And that was actually pretty hard work because even though they're short, there's a lot of concentrated effort in the shortest pieces you know the shorter the piece the more the more perf perfect it can be the more perfectible i would say yeah, someone well um but i i i approached um pseudonyms for practical reasons one of them was that um when i was writing science fiction and there were starting to be some indications that you know i might be producing work that would be considered for a nebula award um at that time, uh, it certainly was not a universal attitude, but there were certainly those in the science fiction writers of America who felt that being a tie-in writer was an indication that you were not a serious artist. And so when I was doing some tie-in work, I wanted to do it under a pseudonym so as, and I, this is not my attitude, but you know, here are the air quotes, so as not to sully my reputation as a writer. Uh, and then... In practical terms, well, here's a little story. There's a, a supermarket checkout magazine called Woman's yeah. World that at the time published a mini mystery and a short romance in every weekly issue. And they paid handsomely they were for good these. Too. And uh, yeah, 
Uh, well, I would say they were, well, they were yeah, very good, but, <laughs> but, but the best of them, but the best of them were good. And, uh, I had sold a couple of the mysteries to them and I was reading the romances all along. And some of them I really didn't think were very successful, but the ones that I liked, um, I liked a lot. And I read in their guidelines that they were open to male point of view stories. And I had never seen them actually print one, but I thought I would give that a try. So I wrote a uh, romance story for them um, with a, a male viewpoint protagonist. And it came back with the most mysterious rejection letter I had ever received. Because I wish I had it in front of me so I could quote from it. Because the rejection seemed to say, um, I really like this a lot, but there's something wrong with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, and, and the something wrong with it, it was clear that the editor really didn't want to, she knew what it was, but she didn't want to say what it was. So I considered that I had never seen a male byline or any romance story anywhere, even though certainly there were male, uh, writers producing them. So I took, uh, Bruce Holland Rogers off of the byline and put Brenda Holland mm -hmm. on it. And changed nothing else about the manuscript. Sent it back to her, and she bought it immediately. Oh, oh. wow! Yes, I, I, I myself, um, my first career was writing romances um, for magazines. It was, and that's sort of um, back in the late seventies, early eighties, when you could actually make a living. Um, so I did. And there were so many of them in the UK. I'm sorry. There were so many yeah. of them in the UK. There were, there was, yeah, yeah there, it was there, a thriving market. What was your byline though? Um, I believe I was Rachel Grant. Rachel Grant. What a good name. Oh, I, Bruce, I read your short story, Estranged, and it's magnificent. And I'll put a link because I think everyone should, should read it. But I read it, it was like, oh, dear Lord, this is the most capture so many of the things that are wrong with the toxic masculinity. I mean, you, you sort of wrote this brilliant caricature, especially the way you sort of made it animism and he's a mop. I can't, I've, wow. <laughs> so I really wanted to rant and say, I loved it. And it really was perfect because it was a very male point of view. So I, now I'm going to have to go stalk you and find the, the Brenda Holland ones to find how the female <laughs> point of view is. What it, did you check it with any women before you published it? Or was it just, you kind of felt confident in where it went? I'm a great believer in test readers. So anything that I have, uh, submitted for publication with with rare exceptions that i later decided were were mistakes uh has had at least somebody who was a, a reliable trustworthy test reader look at it um but more more broadly than that i also am a believer in peer workshops for writers and not just as a learning tool but really as a, as a tool for the working writer and that answers that kind of workshop answers exactly that kind of question. Um, if I submit something from a female viewpoint uh, to one of my writing workshops, uh, I think any of them that I participated in in the last 25 years, the majority of participants have been women. So they would let me know if there were things that were were uh, you know striking a wrong note, were not convincing. Excellent. I married one of those those uh, you know good first readers. Um, so I, you know, so I can get a professional opinion. Um, I, I know not that that's going a little far for some people, but you know. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I was I was married to a first reader for a long time, 
mm-hmm. for for the bulk of my career. And uh, an interesting effect from one of my uh, friends who uh, is a is a longtime reader of my work is that after Holly and I divorced, um, this friend said that it was kind of like a Lennon McCarthy disruption in my work that she said that uh, too much of the dark edge disappeared from my work, um, which, which I thought was, was uh, an interesting observation because I think of myself already as a dark writer. So I don't know if she's accurate that, uh, that Holly vanishing as a reader changed the nature of the work because she wasn't, uh, you know, she wasn't finding the places where I was being too light or if the lightness was an effect of, of, you know, having been divorced Hmm. and, and, you know, and just, and just not wanting to express that darkness at the time. Oh, I don't know. I feel we could go look at a lot of writers and look at the works they produce in between, you know, before divorce, during divorce, and after divorce. And there could be a pattern emerging here, I say, as your psychologist. So it's, <laughs> it is not that unique well, that I've seen on different writers out there. Cough, cough, Stephen Bruce, cough. Any of your artificial intelligence researchers out there want to want a project? Oh, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> the writers and, and major life events, and then uh, just see if the, the quality of the writing changes as... Yeah, do sentiment analysis. Yep, that's a perfect yeah. machine learning sort of. Thing. It is. Actually, it is. That's actually a pretty good idea. That'd be a good. You could uh, even use the authorship test. test. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there there are are programs that test for authorship of uh, an unknown or unattributed document, oh, right. where there are several writers who are are plausible authors of the document, uh, and you have samples of their writing. And there are statistical analyses that, that can be run on aspects like uh, character length and clause structure and, and punctuation choices, things like that. And there are yeah. two things that you might detect in a post-divorce mm-hmm. writer. Uh, one is, is uh, the absence of that first reader's um, editorial influence, but you might also determine that there was some unattributed authorship going on. Well... <laughs> Yeah, that was just like the, this is a perfect moment to mention that my mother proved that the, and I now forgot his name, the, the man who wrote Angle of Repose and got a Pulitzer Prize for it, plagiarized it from Mary Halleck Foote, who is one of the mes- Western American writers that my mother was researching. And I want to put Angle of Repose and, um, and the, the book that uh, Mary Halleck Foote wrote through, you know, through one of those as a comparison because uh, mom did all the research, but, um, and, and, you know, it has it in, you know, on print, but I want to run through those programs and improve that. So anyway, sorry about the digression. No, no, it's, it's a good point. I mean, Carol Wolf wrote a essay that says she is fairly convinced that Shakespeare did not write Cymbeline because Shakespeare was consistent and he did certain things with character development and he did certain things with plot and he did certain things with motivation and Cymbeline sucks for all those three things. Like, I don't know how to begin a play. I don't know how to motivate people and my pacing and organization. It's a big fat mess of a play. It is. It really is. I I, I wrote a poem about Cymbeline once. Well, then that's her theory is that somebody just said, ah, look, he's very successful. I'm going to 
assume his name and who's to say that it isn't me if I pay the publisher. Well, and you know, we just someone someone who's majoring in English or or, or is is in a graduate program in English. We've just given like three or four, you know, major PhD thesis advice and uh, projects to. So we should, you know, publicize this. Right. Well, I want credit for the idea. If somebody does a study, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bruce, what are you working on right now? You've it looks like you've won Bram Stoker's, you've won Nebula's. What do you have in the pipe for us? Well, I have things that are stuck way, way back in the pipe. Um, a little bit of, of recent uh, biography. I had some uh, medical challenges. One of um, the things I in, inherited is polycystic kidney disease. Ooh. And, uh, you know, I, I think I get a lot of my creativity and a lot of my love of speculative fiction from my mother, but I also got bad kidneys from her. And uh, about two years ago, I was at the stage where I had really advanced uremia when I finally went into the nephrologist to complain that I didn't feel like they were taking this seriously enough. Uh, they said, uh, how about you start dialysis Monday? <laughs> um, and I, I realized in retrospect that, you know, I'd had this fairly long fallow period that uh, some contributing aspects were um, the wonderful institution where I had been teaching in an MFA program went suddenly bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, we, 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 the first we heard that there were financial problems was at the beginning of what turned out to be our last semester. Oh. Um, and, uh, you know, a few personal shocks uh, like that, the death of a beloved mentor a mm. uh, uh, Denver area writer, Edward Bryant, who um, certainly got a lot of science fiction and fantasy writers launched and encouraged. Uh, yeah, Connie I mean, Willis is one of the writers who really owes him a debt of gratitude. So all of these things had, had happened, and I was just finding, you know, I wasn't able to concentrate. I wasn't really able to, to write very effectively. And uh, over the course of two years, um, I got a kidney transplant. And I'm just now feeling really fully physically rehabilitated and yeah. ready to start writing again. Oh, my God, you're going to write brilliant humor. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just well, saying, you know, it's these, <laughs> the funniest people that we know are the ones that have had the most tragedy. So I think you're due for the comedic star novel of the year. Well, Bruce, I also had a very bad illness. And during that time, my writing was crap. And I just sold something actually wrote something that I think was, is pretty good. And um, it sold instantly and um, it will be out. And it's the first time I've sold to a magazine. I've always sold to um, anthologies before. So um, I hear you. Yes. Getting well does an amazing thing for your, for your mind and your spirit and your, not just your body. And the fallow period can be an opportunity to say, okay, in some sense I came to an end when this fallow period began. And my illness was serious enough that I was thinking thoughts like, well, how do I assess my career? If this is where my career is over, what do I think of it? And I was very happy with the, the career I had had and the life that I had lived. So now it's an opportunity for me to say, okay, if I have, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 20 years, uh, an opportunity for a second career, what do I want that second career to be? And it may not be the, a continuation of the first career. Uh, I have a very ambitious novel that I had completed in draft. The title is Steam. 
And my elevator pitch is that it's a novel that demonstrates that the futures market, steam locomotives, and manic depression are all the same thing. Oh, I love it. Uh, and uh, I have a small press, uh, one of the, actually the biggest uh, independent, Red Hand Press, uh, where they have, uh, in theory, accepted the novel, getting my revision. Um, but I'm not sure if actually it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. uh, because this is Bruce Phase 2, Part 2. Uh, I also became interested in some nonfiction material, particularly in the true nature and some of the psychological quirks that happen around the institution that we call money. Mm. What is money, really? And I got into trading uh, collectible banknotes for a while, and I still have a cache of Zimbabwe dollars uh, that I occasionally sell, which became part of this scam that is still running today. And so I have all of these insider anecdotes about magical thinking and money that I would like to write a Bill Bryson sort of um, uh, approach, sort of like his, his book about the English language. I would like to write a book that is both factual and funny about money. That would be so very those are cool. those are two things that might emerge from the pipeline. But still yeah. very but I love that it's still very much writing because in the end, writing is still the discipline and exercises of sitting down and doing some and concentrating. And whether it's going to be fiction or nonfiction, you, you seem to have found the consistency of doing the thing, not just thinking, but actually starting and planning and you're plotting out how to do a nonfiction in a lot of ways has a lot in common with how you plot out fiction, right? Oh, absolutely. One of the advantages of nonfiction, of course, is that you can sell the book uh, on an outline and uh, some sample chapters, uh, usually with a bit of sales analysis and, and uh, you know, the, all, all the things that go into what they call a book proposal. Uh, and whether you actually use a proposal to sell the book or not, writing one is a great exercise for the nonfiction writer because it really forces you to take a look at the big structure and explore what territory you might be missing and what's the proper order in which to present things for the maximum entertainment value, the maximum impact. Uh, so yeah, and you know, and both of them, I, I am a structuralist. I'm really interested in in the structure of fiction and the structure of nonfiction narrative. It, it's really about um, being interested in all the possible strategies that one can use to convey information or tell a story. I wish you were writing every textbook in America. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will put links to some of Bruce's stories. And Bruce, if you send me your absolute favorites of what represents you, I'm going to throw it up there so everybody can read it onto our page on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Bruce, if we have somebody who's got a question for you, can we uh, pass that to you and you will answer it for them? Absolutely. I'd be delighted to do so. Hooray! You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Lindberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our sponsors are art, coffee, chocolate, and rum in any organization. And to all of you out there, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>